Ah, thank you, Lord. Thank you for children. Thank you for this church having children. It's been so long, and it's great to have them regularly. We, you've blessed this church, Lord, and we thank you for that. Thank you for meeting all our needs. Thank you for bringing in new believers. Thank you for what we just sang about, changed lives. We thank you how you're, you're using this church as a place to proclaim the word that does the changing of lives, Lord, as it renews our minds and changes our behavior in ways that glorify you. And now, Lord, as we begin our study in 1 Corinthians, I, I just want to lift up the whole journey through the letters to the Corinthians, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that in areas where our lives aren't conformed to your word, that we would let your word change our lives, that we would let the power of the Holy Spirit work in us and transform us to be more like you, that our lives might glorify you more. So now, Lord, as we begin this journey, help us to be open to the Holy Spirit working in us through the word. And I pray that you would just edit whatever I've prepared as I deliver it. Add or just detract from whatever I've prepared. Pray your Holy Spirit has his way, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, we're beginning, as I said in the prayer, the, the journey through 1 Corinthians. And so it's, uh, we just uh, are, are on a new, new uh, trip here through the letter. It's, it's a fascinating two letters, and it's rich with um, all kinds of exhortation. It's, I think it's the letter that most clearly tells us how the early church functioned. And so we, you know, over time we, man thinks he knows better <laughs> and he thinks he's got better ideas, but the best idea was what God delivered through the Holy Spirit to the church, the beginning, the church, the apostles. And that's where we get our doctrine. It shouldn't change, amen? It's eternal. If it was delivered by the God who doesn't change, why would why would we change it? <laughs> Amen? Amen. So in honor of God's word, we're only going to do three verses this morning, the introduction. Would you stand with me as I read these, the introduction to the letter to the Corinthians? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. So I... Uh, I want to begin our series in Corinthians by just going back a little bit and, and telling about who Paul is, who, what, what is this city, what's the situation. This church is in Corinth was founded by the Apostle Paul, and so he's writing as a father with his heart for what he's heard are uh, 
really waywardness of his children. They, they're starting to do things that he didn't teach, starting to do things that are ungodly. And so he's writing this letter to urge them to get back on track. Charles Hodges introduces this letter by writing that the letter to the Corinthians reveals to us more of the personal character of the apostle than any of his other letters. They show him as a man, as a pastor, as a counselor, as in conflict not only with heretics but also with personal enemies. They reveal his wisdom, his zeal, his forbearance, his liberality of principle and practice in all matters not affecting salvation, his strictness in all matters of right and wrong, his humility and perhaps all, his unwearied activity and wonderful endurance. That's the end of the quote. It's a letter consisting mostly of correcting this fledgling church, steering them away from uh, the patterns and ideas that, from the culture that have infiltrated the church. This letter is the most informative account in the New Testament as to how the early church functioned. And today we're going to take uh, an in-depth look just into the greeting to the Corinthians. So the first verse says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. Now, Paul, the author, he was originally a Jew, Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a town of major universities. Um, it was a, uh, a town where People went from all over to study. Greek, Greek studies, Jewish studies, all kinds of studies took place there in Tarsus. He studied himself under one of the leading rabbis of his time, if not the lead rabbi, Gamaliel. He thought that this Jesus sect that at, in the, originally was called the way was perverting Judaism. And so he was passionate to... Uh, persecute Christians to try to, to stop this new faction from influencing the Jewish people. But he was miraculously converted by this uh, a divine encounter with the resurrected Jesus when he was on the road to Damascus. He had letters from the Jewish leadership, the Sanhedrin, to go and arrest and imprison Christians in Damascus. So before he arrives in Damascus, he, this light appears, and, and he says, it's, I think it's hilarious because he says, who are you, Lord? <laughs> and he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. And so after this conversion, this zeal that he had to stop the church, to stop this new movement, became zeal for the movement, zeal to share that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior. And on his first missionary journey, he, he eventually ended up in Antioch in, in Syria. And from that church, uh, Barnabas actually went and found him and brought him to Antioch. He said, we need your help. All these Gentiles are coming to Christ. And, and you know the scriptures so well, we need you here in Antioch. Well, after a while in Antioch, this is in Acts chapter 13, he was one of the elders of Antioch. They're, they get together, they start worshiping and praying and fasting and praying and seeking God. And the Holy Spirit says to them, 
send out Paul and Barnabas for the ministry that I have for them. So Paul and Barnabas get sent out for the, for the first missionary journey. And early in that ministry, they, they go to the island of Crete. And as they get to the far side of the island, um, they meet a governor there, a Roman governor, Sergius Paulus. And he converts to Christianity. The, the soothsayer, the magician that he has for him is blinded because he's opposing Paul. And, and uh, so God miraculously blinds that uh, fortune teller, that magician, and this helps Sergius Paulus convert. And from that time on, Paul, in scripture anyway, Paul begins to call him, Saul begins to call himself Paul. Now that was common in the Jewish world at the time, especially those who lived amongst Gentiles, to have a Jewish name and a Roman or Greek name. We don't know if Paul had, if Saul was, also had the name Paul before while he lived in Tarsus, but we do know that from then on in Acts, he, it's all, he's always referred to as Paul. Even when he goes back into Israel, he's still always referred to as Paul. And we don't know exactly uh, for sure why, but we can probably assume that because he's the apostle to the Gentiles, he wants a name that they can relate to. But there may be something else, something that we see all throughout church history actually, is sometimes believers change their names because of the new identity, right? When you are in Christ, you become a new creation, amen? So to identify with their new life and to put their old life behind them, they changed their name. This may have been a part of the reason that Paul stuck with that name throughout the rest of his ministry. You know, um, I have a pastor friend in the Verde Valley, sometimes calls me for counseling, and um, I, every once in a while I slip and I call him Jim. And he corrects me really quick. My name is James because his old name was Jim. Jim reminds him of who he used to be. Jim reminds him of the old man, the time in prison, the drugs, everything that was before. And he doesn't want to identify this. So he reminds me, my name is Jim, James, I'm sorry. And don't you forget it, <laughs> right? He's a new creation. And my computer just went on a blip. Let's see if it works this time. Nope. Okay, I'm going to switch to paper notes since computers sometimes do their glitch thing. So in the first verse, he alludes to that conversion experience by saying that he was called by the will of God. It certainly wasn't his own will. I mean, he, here he is on, on the road to arrest Christians and Jesus meets him. So obviously this was God's will, not his own. And yet he had a heart to do God's will. He just was misinformed. In fact, in, later in his letters, he says he did it in ignorance. The calling God gave him was to be an apostle, which means an official 
representative. It's kind of like we use the word ambassador today. God, Jesus was calling him to be his ambassador to the world. Now, there were the other 12 apostles, one, the one Judas who hung himself, and um, they voted or they cast lots to pick a 12th, but um, Paul's kind of implying he really is the 12th. Or maybe some people say he was the 13th. Regardless, he was an official representative of Jesus. And what did they do? Well, first of all, he, he's not superior to other Christians. He just has a special calling. And that calling is to relay to people, relay especially to the church, the teachings and the fact of the resurrection. Everyone who was an apostle one of the criteria was that they had to see the resurrected Christ so they could testify to people that they had seen the risen Christ, that he conquered death, that he was victorious. And if in the church there was ever an issue from other teachers, because other teachers naturally rose up, God's given the church teachers, Ephesians 4.11, so there are other teachers. But if there's ever a question within the church about doctrine, the apostles had the final say because they heard from Jesus, they saw the resurrected Lord. Paul also tells us that Sosthenes is the co-author. Now, I think he's being very gracious here. He's probably the, uh, the secretary writing down the letter for him as Paul dictates it to him. But uh, Paul does that in several of his letters. He mentions the person that's the secretary and says it's from them as well. The Greek name Sosthenes was common at the time. It literally means the brother. And so maybe Sosthenes came from Corinth to help Paul write this letter to the Corinthian church, or he may be the person who's also named Sosthenes in Acts 18.17. If you remember that story, um, the, uh, the town was stirred up against this new movement that was there, um, the people, these people who turned the world upside down have come here too. And so the, the city was in an uproar. They snuck Paul out of town. They couldn't find Paul. So they get the, the, the ruler of the synagogue and beat him instead. Um, and they're part of the ones who caused the persecution on Paul. So kind of ended up backfiring on them. But his name was Sosthenes. And so it's possible that he was converted and was assisting Paul. We don't know for sure. Scholars believe that this um, is one of Paul's earliest letters, probably written between 53 and 57 AD while Paul was in the city of Ephesus. And as I mentioned before, it gives us insight into the earliest practices, beliefs, and struggles of the early church. It also proves to us that the teaching of Jesus' death and, uh, uh, as atonement for our sins and his resurrection was widely known within 20 years of Jesus' death. That's important because it means eyewitnesses were still living at the time. And some of the things that Paul, the quotes that Paul gives in the letter to the Corinthians came from even earlier. Now, if they were making up these stories, the eyewitnesses would say, hey, wait a minute, I was there, that didn't happen. And that would squash the, the, uh, the growth of this movement, but that didn't happen. 
Uh, verse 2, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those in every place, call, who in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The Greek word for church means um, an assembly. And so there were other ecclesia, other called out or other assembled groups in Corinth at the time, philosophy groups, logic groups, uh, uh, guild groups that met assemblies, but this was the assembly of God. And that's where the assembly of God church gets its name. And now the church of God, the assembly of God, which is, consists of many assemblies now throughout the world, in, throughout this city, throughout the world, and throughout time. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, the, the uh, writers, even Moses, refers to the children of Israel in the wilderness as the assembly of Israel or the assembly in the wilderness. The church of God doesn't belong to any man when we say it is the church of God. It doesn't belong to an individual. No matter how influential or anointed the leader is, we should be wary of calling a church by a man's name. It's the church of God, which he has purchased with the blood of Jesus. I recall reading about Martin Luther being upset that people were starting to call themselves Lutherans. It really irritated him. It's funny that after he died, they went ahead and did it anyway. It saddens me when Christian ministries are named after their founder. And I literally cringe when I hear people say Paul's church or how is your church doing? Please, it's not my church. It's the church of God, amen? This is God's church and any ministries that come out of it are his. The church consists of those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, the body of Christ which consists of all who have called upon the name of our Lord Jesus and received him as Lord over their lives. We are God's called out ones in the particular city in which we gather. We are one with the church throughout the ages. We are to be holy in this fallen world in which we live. And all the glory for what's done through us belongs to God who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Amen. Just as Paul was called to be an apostle, this verse, verse 2, says we are called to be saints. And that simply means we've received forgiveness through the cross. Christians are sanctified because Jesus has given us his righteousness. We are being sanctified daily through our trials and through the pruning of God's word. God sees Jesus' sacrifice for us, which took all our sins, even our future ones, and our completion when we see Jesus face to face. That is an encouraging thing. You, you need to grab hold of that idea. When Jesus looks at you, he's not seeing all your blunders. He's seeing you clothed in Christ. He's seeing you with the righteousness of Christ, which will be a reality when we see him face to face. But he sees it done now. That's why we can go before the throne of God. Because he doesn't see this sinner who's 
bumbling around and has unpure un thoughts at times and who sometimes ignores the Holy Spirit, he sees the righteousness of Christ over us as we approach the throne of grace. But then we will be inwardly and outwardly like him. Hallelujah. That's why Paul calls those who are in Christ sanctified now, but also called to be saints, meaning to live a holy life. Do you see the, that how the right now and the not yet is expressed? You are in his eyes now. You will be when you see him then. The Greek word translated called here is more than our word invited. It's called with a power to transform. All are, in, all are invited to receive the forgiveness that Jesus has purchased for us, but only those who respond, respond to the invitation are called. They are called to be saints, which is to be set apart for God's use. The earliest use of that is in the Old Testament when the instruments in the temple were called holy because they were set apart for God's use alone. And so as we are called to be holy, we are called to be instruments for God's use alone. We'd like to think we can do our own thing, and we can. He allows us to. But his will for us is to be for his use alone to give him glory in everything that we do. This is true of all who are calling on the name, crying out for his salvation by grace as justice for our sins met, met on the cross. This calling indicates a continual, earnest appeal and dependence on Christ who alone can save. In other words, it's not just one thing we do at one point in time in our life. It's a continual earnest appeal and dependence on Christ. It's to ask for his steadfast love and all that he is. That's what's implied by the word name. It's not just the name, Jesus. It is, the Hebrews saw the name as all that one is. So all that, when we call upon God, we're calling on all the attributes of God. His mercy, his grace, his righteousness, his goodness, his kindness, his love. The letter to the Corinthians, also to all in every place who call on the name of Jesus and have accepted him as Lord. So that includes us who have come here this morning. It's those who have accepted God's invitation and thereby received the calling to follow Jesus. If you haven't cast yourself on the mercy of Christ and prayed for the forgiveness of sins, there's no better day to do it than now. The sooner, the better. Then you too will be sanctified and called to be a saint to, with those everywhere who call on his name and know him as Lord. And that makes us all equal for each of us receives the righteousness of Jesus. Together with the help of the Holy Spirit, we are living out that call to be holy. Now, while there are overseers of the church, which the Bible refers to as elders, None are superior to others in the church. All are equal at the foot of the cross. We are all sinners saved by grace. We are all works in progress. Elders are told not to lord it over the flock, but rather to serve the flock in love. 
The elders lead the church through the word and prayer, not personal opinion. They must all agree in the spirit on God's leading before they direct the congregation or discipline the wayward. We're all waiting for Jesus to finish the work in us. Amen? We should all remember that God resists the proud but exalts the humble. To better understand this letter to the Corinthians, we need to know a little about, about the city of Corinth. It was very much like our world, and that's why we're, I think we're really going to get a lot out of the letter, because America has some, become so much like Corinth. Rome had conquered this Greek city that controlled two ports and rebuilt it in the, in the mode of the best Roman cities. And it was kind of like a, an isthmus, and the ships would come to one side and then there was a narrow area on the isthmus that the slaves would haul across to the port on the other side. So they had all these logs. Approximately 100,000 slaves lived in Corinth for the purpose of hauling the ships across that isthmus because the water on the, the, the southern tip of it was rough and, and wild and it, it, could be, it could cost the ship, the, the ship or, and its cargo. So they would pay the, to have those ships hauled across that isthmus. So because of that, it's a, it was a city of great trade. Corinth boasted of the best of everything. It was a place where people made a name for themselves, gained wealth, attempted to be the best in their field, whether it was religious or manufacturing or athletics or religion or lust, and there was plenty of opportunities for lust in Corinth. Um, in fact, the, the word Corinthian um, be, became used for people who were morally debased. So in the midst of this metropolitan city of wealth and idolatry and hedonism was this little struggling church proclaiming another Lord, a crucified Lord. Paul started the church and he longed to see it survive and prosper because of its central location and how the, all, the, all that traveled through it would influence the world. So this, these, this little group of called out ones were called out of the culture of Corinth and into the kingdom of God to influence this, this pagan city, to live lives that were noticeably different from the average Corinthian. Now, as I said, Corinth and the Roman culture were so similar to our own culture. I think we're seeing, are you seeing the picture? Were we able to load the picture there? That, that is the uh, temple to, the, to Apollo. There were lots of temples in Corinth. The most prominent one was on the top of the hill, and it was a temple to Aphrodite and boasted a thousand temple prostitutes. To be called in Corinth, uh, Corinthians, as I said, was to be, to be called someone who is morally debased. So as we go through the letter, remember the members in these church are living, trying to, trying to be an example of Christ, trying to live a Christ-like life in the city with all these influences. Christian values have remained the same, but the culture always declines in every society throughout history, unless there's revival. Making a name for oneself, seeking to be the most affluent, pleasure-seeking are all areas in which our modern culture mirrors Corinth. As believers, we need to stand out. People should see where we will not compromise to fit in, 
but they should also see our love and our joy. If they only see our resistance to the culture's decline without witnessing our love and joy, they're going to just assume that we're stuck in the past, intolerant killjoys who don't like change. The fruits of the Spirit manifest in our lives declare there is substance behind our objections. When they see the joy and the peace and the love, then it, it declares to them there's something more. We're not just objecting it because we like what's old and old-fashioned. There's something in us that makes us different. That's how we make a difference in one life at a time. We share the hope that we have in Jesus, and then we disciple those who are receptive. Verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this was a very typical greeting in that day, but um, Paul takes it and sanctifies it. Maybe that's the way to express it. He takes it and gives it a much richer meaning. Grace is God's favor, which is out of the goodness of his heart and not earned in any way by us. The result of receiving that grace is peace in our hearts. The source of grace and peace is only found in Jesus and a restored relationship with God. The world can only offer shadows of the real thing and they are fleeting at best. We who have received grace and peace from Jesus should overlook sins against us as we reflect God's grace extended to us who once were sinning against him. John the Beloved wrote that we who are in Jesus have received out of his fullness grace upon grace. That's like saying we've been given grace piled upon grace. That's John 1.16. Much of the time, we're unaware of our sins that are so offensive to God. We neglect to do good that he sets before us. We go on our way with an excuse that we don't have time, we're too busy. We give our conscience an excuse and we take the grace of God for granted. Then he gives us more grace for taking his grace so lightly. It isn't that he's just this kind old gentleman who's not easily offended, but rather that he's deeply offended at our sin, but that the cross paid the debt so that we can be justly forgiven. He knows how weak we are and how prone to sin our old nature is. That's why he sent Jesus to make a way out of our condition. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to empower us to live a new life to recognize the sin that we so easily, easily overlook. And then we take his grace for granted. <laughs> Even then, what mercy is expressed to us when we excuse sin in our lives? And then the goodness of God leads us to repentance. You see, as we see it and start to realize it, as the Holy Spirit brings it up and that conviction grows that, man, I just did it again can't believe I keep doing this. We start to, and God just keeps giving me grace. The goodness of God then urges us to allow the Holy Spirit to make that transformation in our lives, to empower us to be different. We can and should, therefore, extend grace to others, for God has paid such a high price through the cross 
that we might receive grace upon grace. You know, when we get to heaven, we won't need grace anymore. Because everyone there will already have been recipients of grace and have been perfected. God having completed the work in us through grace. However, peace, which is the outcome of grace, is going to be the very atmosphere of heaven. Peace will permeate all that's done. Peace with God and with one another. And we taste a little bit of it here on earth as brothers and sisters in Christ when we extend grace to one another and we make that effort to be at peace. But sadly, too often we fail to be gracious and forgiving and that results in a lack of peace. I would suggest that real peace is unknowable without Jesus as Lord of one's life. And that's because the only way to have peace with God is through Jesus. Paul wrote in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We were once enemies of God and actively resisting the spirit of grace that was drawing us to Jesus. But when the grace of God convicted us of our sins and prompted us to believe, we found that peace that we'd been longing for. No longer did we need to carry the guilt and the fear of judgment that we deserve. The war against God was over. We switched to the winning side. Hallelujah. And there's still a war waged, but it's our old nature fighting the new nature in us but we know that Jesus is the victory. Jesus is our peace. In John 14, 27, Jesus said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He gives us his very own peace. Now think about this ultimate peace that Jesus has. He knows the future, okay? He's outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning and it can't be altered. He has all power given to him from the Father. He knows everything. Satan has tried his best to stop Jesus and in the process, Jesus brought salvation to all who would receive him. Knowing that God's plan is to make us into Jesus' likeness and that it's certain to be fulfilled, that evil will end and righteousness will prevail forever is an amazing kind of peace. Jesus said he gives his peace to us. He doesn't give the world's kind of peace. That's a temporary lack of conflict. The world's peace doesn't even consider the need for peace with God or provide any kind of insurance for the future. In fact, it anticipates future conflict. His peace is very different from anything we experience before we knew him. His deep and sure peace that he shares with us is the reason we can, he can say, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Don't allow your hearts to be anxious about anything. You are loved by Almighty God. You are the bride of Christ. He will see you through whatever he allows to come your way. That's peace that passes understanding. 
And what a testimony it is to those who don't know this peace. Do you have that peace? If you're in Jesus, he has freely given it to you. And he offers it to all who are willing to receive it, who will embrace it. You must accept Jesus' peace. You must believe that he holds the future. The one who holds the future holds you too. You must know that he has made you his own and that you are his beloved and that he is yours. There was a, a dear lady that was a longtime member of Wayside. And as she was growing older, her husband had died. She was trying to get by on her own. Everybody, we all want to be independent. And so she was trying to live alone. And she confided in me that I just worry. I, I can't get rid of worry. It's part of my nature. It's, I've always been this way. It's just who I am. And I tried to tell her about how, how wonderful God is, how she can cast all her cares upon, upon him, that she doesn't need to worry. Yes, but what if I'm, I'm not, my mind isn't clear? And I said, it doesn't matter. God will take care of you. She had a, such a hard time grasping that. But when her mind did become so unclear, she couldn't take care of herself. One of her relatives, not an immediate relative, brought her to his own home, took care for her, of her wonderfully until the day she passed. She didn't need to worry. God took care, care of her, and he will take care of us. God loves us. Do we have that unflappable peace that almighty God loves us and cares for us and that he will see us through whatever he allows? That brings a wonderful sense of peace. Well, we've just gone over the three short verses of Paul's greeting to the Corinthian church. And as it is the word of God, it has a lot to say to us. It's not just a greeting. We see Paul's calling to be an apostle. We see our calling to be saints. And we have contemplated just the surface of the riches of the grace and peace that are ours in Jesus. We live in a world of competing philosophies, many of which are telling us that we can attain what we seek by our own power. I just saw a new commercial yesterday that said, if you believe, you can do it. If you believe, <laughs> oh boy. And they were talking about like these figure skaters that could do quadruple axles or whatever they call them. You know, I thought, yeah, try, try telling a new skater, if you just believe, <laughs> you can do a triple sow cow. <laughs> but boy. Jesus simply invites us to realize we are carrying a heavy burden and he invites us to come to him and find rest. He has done it for us. He will give us his peace and his burden is light. Are you experiencing Jesus' peace? His grace is holding out to you as a gift. Will you receive his forgiveness and embrace his grace and know his peace? You're called to be a saint. Will you call on Jesus' name continually, all that he is to you, and let him do that work in you?